Welcome to the Nicholas Natalie Show. Today on the podcast, we have Luke Rodriguez. He's joining us for a part two where we chat about the possibility of getting involved in war, the issues of our healthcare system, illegal immigration and its impact on our country, race issues, and if the two-party system is the best fit for the U.S. If you didn't listen to last week's episode, Luke was valedictorian and presidential scholar of CSUF, granting him a full ride. He is a distinguished scholar at UCLA Law School, granting him a full ride. He's nationally ranked fifth place for mock trial and UCLA finalists in the court competition. This week's riddle is when does a British potato change its nationality? I'll reveal the answer at the end of the podcast. NicholasNatalie.com slash shop for merch. We got face masks. We got sweatshirts. Check them out. YouTube.com slash NicholasNatalie for new videos every Monday. Be sure to leave a five-star review and become the reviewer of the week. We're trying to get to 100 five-star reviews fast. I'm the host. You're the listener. Here's the podcast. However, another thing, and this is something that I read, so hopefully it's sure. true. I read that Trump's administration is the first administration in roughly 50 years to not give, get involved in a war. So if that's true, you know, shout out, shout out to him. But with the new president coming in, should we be, be concerned about war becoming a possibility again? Um, so just, just a just a quick correction. So 50 years ago would be in 1970. So um, so Nixon, Ford, and Carter, neither of them got into any uh, any new wars. So I guess that would be what for 40 years. So, but I think the point just still broadly stands. Um, but I, I do think it's important to talk about like the context of when uh, when other presidents did engage in conflict to sort of see whether or not you know that this was like a particularly um, amazing accomplishment, right? I mean, George Bush. I don't think anybody disputes had to go and enter military conflict. I mean, there was a the largest domestic terrorist attack um, in the United States. The I mean, the Afghanistan war. I think it like passed with only one person voting no in Congress. I mean, it was a virtually uncontroversial war. Mm-hmm. Iraq war was obviously more controversial, but it was based off of a genuine belief that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Um, so again, I think, you know, e- even Trump at the time was initially cautiously supportive of the Iraq war. Uh, right. Obama, you know, there was not any like large, wide scale military conflict. Um, the one that a lot of people point to is the United States intervention in Libya during Libya civil war. And again, on that one, I mean, I so I, I think the United States was absolutely correct. And it wasn't just the United States, it was the United States with several other countries um, in NATO that uh, intervened and basically um, uh, Gaddafi, who was the the dictator of Libya, was like just slaughtering thousands of people. I mean, uh, people who were protesting against his regime that he deemed a threat. And people have cited some people who uh, are against United States uh, intervening in military conflict have cited Libya intervention as a failure. And I I just completely disagree. Um, The the question, I mean, we did topple uh, Gaddafi. And the question is, and people say, well, there was no democracy that was established in Libya, but that was just never the goal. And the question ultimately becomes, is Libya better off today than they would have been, than right. it would be if, if the United States and the NATO allies hadn't intervened? And the answer is almost certainly yes. I mean, if you take a country like Syria, where there's been less intervention, I mean, um, um, Bashar al-Assad, the dictator there, has like killed like 400,000 people. And so, you know, I, I definitely think that intervention in that case was was right. So... And then if like, I'm just thinking like in general, right? Like there's just been times in the United States that we didn't intervene that we should have, right? Like Rwanda, mm-hmm. where the, mm-hmm. the ethnic minority there were 800,000 of them slaughtered. Bill Clinton talks about it. One of his greatest regrets of his presidency was not intervening in Rwanda. Um, and then if, if you want to go back as far as like World War II, I mean, that I, my pro, you know, the, the, the non-interventionists, the people who are against America intervening in military conflict. Say you neoconservatives never find a war you don't like, which I think is <laughs> a slander. But they, but I would say that they, the isolationists, there's never a war that they seem that they would enter. And like World War II, right. the United States' involvement was crucial. Um, right. So, I, so it's weird because I don't necessarily see like there's almost this like myth among the the anti-interventionist crowd that like war comes from. Uh, I don't know, like a lack of ability to negotiate between two countries and it just leads to military conflict. I mean, it's oftentimes it's there's intervention to pre- pre- prevent like mass slaughter of people. And so you saw this in, during Trump's administration where 
uh, the United States had a very positive relationship with the Kurds in Syria. And then the United States withdrew from Syria, which promoted a lot of criticism of Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. And Trump basically left them to the slaughter. And so like Trump now, in the, the very end of his administration, they're trying to pull out a bunch of military troops from um, different areas like um, Somalia, right? Where like there's a huge al-Qaeda insurgency in Somalia. And meanwhile, they pursued like peace agreements with the Taliban that, quite frankly, in my opinion, give a lot more to the Taliban than they give to the United States. It basically right. relies on the Taliban for ca- counterterrorism. And so I, I just I, I like there just has to be times where a country is willing to uh, intervene in a military conflict. And so. I, in terms of whether or not we should be worried about, will there be military conflicts in the future? I mean, it, it just depends what happens in the future. I mean, I, I think military conflict generally should be on the table uh, when it's justified. Um, and so, and, and there were times that it was justified, I think, over the past four years. And there was a, there were critical mistakes made by not intervening in some military conflict. So, I, I just don't see it. I understand, like the to the outsider appeal of like, yeah, there were no new military conflicts, but that's not always a good thing. It sometimes means that you failed to prevent the mass slaughter of people, uh, and that's certainly not a good thing. Or that you allowed a country to be continue to be ruled by a dictator. So you know what? Yeah, I mean, I part of it's going to depend too on who uh, Biden's Secretary of Defense ends up being. He nominated Lloyd Austin. Um, he might not get confirmed for technical reasons there's um her name is michelle florney uh, who's a little bit more hawkish who could be the secretary of defense and if she is i certainly expect a, a fairly hawkish united states foreign policy uh and we'll just have to wait and see and part of it's going to just depend on what 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 issues arise around the globe um over the next four years yeah maybe too early to say but you're definitely right on i i feel like i've always heard the um the ana- this is the analogy i've always been I've always heard it's like if you became aware that your your neighbor is beating their wife, <laughs> wouldn't you want to stop that? Like, wouldn't you want to like find a way to make sure that doesn't ever happen again? And I, right. I don't know. That's kind of that's kind of how I've always looked at. Yeah, that's like that's, that's the small scale version of it. Although in the in yeah. the large scale, it gets a lot worse. <laughs> it's like when there's eight hundred thousand ethnic minorities in Rwanda being slaughtered, should you intervene? Well, yeah. pro- probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so then on the other side, let's talk maybe nuclear warfare. Maybe, maybe do we talk about that if that's on the table? Because Kim Jong Un, you know, he said, "I'm not gonna denuclearize my country." And mm-hmm. you know, I think this is this is my extent of knowledge is that Obama didn't want to meet with him unless he would denuclearize. Trump met with him. And I'm assuming a more of like keep your enemies close kind of deal. And then sure. Biden has also said the same thing of I don't want to meet with you unless you denuclearize your country. What do we make of that? Is North Korea maybe a big threat for nuclear warfare? Um, well, I'll start off with 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 in general talking about what Trump's approach was and why I think it was just a colossal failure. Um Nothing was gained by Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un, but a lot was lost. I mean, he really did do a lot to help. uh, Well, he did a lot to hurt our relations with South Korea, quite frankly, um, and gave an aura of legitimacy around a very, very brutal dictator who throws his citizens in concentration camps, who has murdered his own citizens, murdered his uncle. and who had murdered an American citizen, right? I mean, after uh, when Trump was really trying to pursue good diplomatic relationships with Kim Jong-un and North Korea, um, there was an American who was uh, Otto um, Warm, Warmbier, um, who was in a uh, prison labor camp in the United States, and then, or sorry, in North Korea. He was, he was from the United States, and then ended up having to go to a hospital because it's like they, they virtually worked him to death. And then North Korea sent the United States a $2 million medical bill for Otto oh that Donald gosh. Trump agreed to pay, oh my like, gosh. which I just find de- – and so it's like what did we gain from all this? It, you know, it would have been one thing if, look, we, we legitimize a dictator, but we got to de- denuclearize North Korea. There would be a plausible argument to be made. Um, it would be a tough question, but there would be an argument to be made that that trade-off was worth it. But that's just not what we got. We have a 
country that is uh, has greater nuclear capabilities than they've ever had before, certainly than they had four years compared to how they had four years ago. Um, and so I, I I think that it was yeah an, an, an utter and colossal failure. Whether or not we have to worry about North Korea using nuclear weapons, I'm I'm a little bit um, less concerned about. I mean, I guess part of it depends on whether or not you buy into nuclear deterrence theory, which is the idea that like once you have X number of countries with a nuclear weapon, everybody just becomes like much less cautious and much more concerned to use them because it's like, well, if North Korea launches one of their nukes, like they'll just get wiped out, and I it would be very hard. As long as you believe that Kim Jong-un is a rational actor, which maybe that is up for debate, then it would just – there would be virtually no gain from him from using nuclear weapons. So it's not something I'm particularly worried about. It's still not a good thing, right, because it's hard to put any pressure on North Korea when they do have nuclear weapons. It just kind of creates a, a weird standoff. So it's certainly not a good thing, and I'm certainly not suggesting that um, that we're all better off because North Korea has nuclear weapons. Uh, I'm just <laughs> – I mean, it's a, it's generally is a very, very, very bad thing. Um, uh, and again, I'm not necessarily even promoting nuclear deterrence theory. There's also a counter argument that we're all worse off with with more countries having nuclear weapons. Um, but will they be used? It's it, it's hard to imagine a situation where they would be. But <laughs> we'll see. I mean, I'd be more worried about <laughs> things like ballistic missiles and stuff that can do damage, but not like on the level of nuclear weapons. Right, man. What do we make of having North Korea be who they are? Do do what stance should we take? Should we take more of a stand of I'm not meeting with you unless you denuclearize, or should we say don't talk to us, you know? Or should we say we're gonna just we're gonna we're gonna hop right in the middle of this and we're gonna take you down and then reorganize your country? What would be our best best case scenario moving forward with them? See, this is the thing. If if if, if North Korea didn't have nuclear weapons, I'd be entirely in favor of regime change, regime change, yeah. and and assassinating Kim Jong Un. And um, but that's maybe, maybe, there's obviously a high risk with that. You know, I I certainly don't see any upside to meeting with them, um, so long as they stay nuclearized. Um, there's just I I see virtually no upside to it. Um, I don't know. Maybe somebody can convince me otherwise, but it, it it's hard to see why now. Um, and you know I. I mean, it's like I just like if the upside would be good diplomatic relationships with North Korea, but then losing good diplomatic relations with South Korea. South Korea is is a very important ally, and so, um, and we certainly wouldn't want to lose our military bases in South Korea. So yeah, I just see very little upside to it. Oof, man, we'll, we'll see what happens. Let's move on to healthcare. Healthcare, man. Hot topic, and honestly, I feel like I've been trying to figure out what's going on with it for for months now. But really, can we have affordable health care without giving all of the power to our government? Is that a possibility? You know, it's it's difficult. I I I, am, I, I have to disqual or I have to qualify all of this by saying that I am far from uh, an expert in healthcare. Um, I think the Republicans missed a, a real opportunity back in 2010, uh, any leveraging power, um, because they basically in unison uh, opposed any health care reform. Um, and there could have been some serious and th- there are some very real serious objections, Republican objections um, to health care in the United States today with how it's financed. Um, you could certainly imagine like if. Republicans had tried to leverage uh, funding healthcare through higher excise taxes on things that lead to, that that lead to increased healthcare costs like alcohol, uh, marijuana where it's legal, and, that, and sugar even. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's the, the capital within the Republicans to do that, but you know Republicans talk about vices and maybe there would be some political will to tax things like cigarettes that lead to staggering healthcare costs. Uh, the, the reason I raise all of this is to say is that instead Republicans have taken a very different path, and it's to push for the repeal of Obamacare, which, look, when, when democratic societies enact large sweeping changes in a social safety net, it's virtually, it virtually never gets repealed, especially now that the roots are really deep into it. So, yeah. so I'm prefacing this all to say that like Obamacare certainly is not going anywhere. And so the question is, you know, how, how do you improve it? I mean, like there already is just significant government involvement in healthcare and that just probably won't change. Um, in terms of how you how you fix it, I, I I'm it's generally a question I, I find myself stumped on. Um, there's I, I, 
so if you want to go to like sort of the most extreme um, government version of it, United Kingdom has the, um, uh, I think it's NHS, National Health Service. Um, and they are basically, it's just all of healthcare is ran by a government bureaucracy. Like doctors are government employees. Um, if you have like, you could have universal healthcare that looks more like Canada, um, where the government basically subsidizes healthcare, uh, but private insurance is is still allowed. Um, doctors are not government employees and that sort of thing. And then I would say even a more modest proposal is something like Joe Biden is proposing, which is a like Medicare with a public option, which basically would like allow people to buy into me- uh, to Medicare um, and have them. And the government is essentially their healthcare provider. You know, all those are very very difficult. Um, I like, I just, I generally don't know which of those or maybe none of those is the best options. Um, I have heard, so there's the, um, I'm going to, I'm going to bring up his name again when we talk about immigration, but, um, David Frum wrote a really good book called Trumpocalypse mm-hmm. and he, and he discussed, um, a sort of, um, a sort of compromise when it comes to immigration and healthcare. And, and he theorizes that, one of the reasons why there's a lot of skepticism of social safety net programs um, is because of large scale immigration uh, in the United States. And so he he suggests that you could have a, like he, he want, basically would like to see universal health care as a way of um, identifying what it means to be an American. Right. So mm-hmm. if like if, if you look at the United Kingdom, people look, talk about the NHS as part of what it means to be a UK citizen. In Canada, it, the healthcare system there is like defines what it means to be a Canadian. Now, the the thing that you have to do, the the sort of giveaway you have to do, that a lot of progressives won't like, is you just cannot allow either mass scale immigration or mm-hmm. people who are uh, illegally present to then take part of that because one, it just it sort of defeats the whole purpose of social cohesion using universal healthcare as a purpose of social cohesion, and second. It's just not politically sustainable. I mean, yeah. people's perception that you know that illegal immigrants are benefiting from our social safety programs—it's—it's it's destined to fail. I mean, this is probably one of the reasons why you see so many people who are boomers who live in a country that's far less racially diverse than the one that, or sorry, far more racially diverse than the one they grew up in. Um, they're largely supportive of of um, social safety benefits that protect them, like Social Security and Medicare. Uh, but largely skeptical of programs like universal healthcare, which they view as socialist. Um, so, meanwhile, though, at times where we have lower immigration levels in the United States, people have been the most supportive of stronger social safety net programs. So, I do think it's an interesting proposal to like lower immigration levels to restrict uh, um, universal healthcare to uh, to U.S. citizens and make universal healthcare as part of what it means to be an American. I don't know if I'm particularly sold on the idea, but I think it's a very interesting social cohesion building idea because the United States is incredibly divided. And I don't know, maybe there is something like universal healthcare that can, um, that can reestablish a sense of national identity. Yeah. Help jealous together. I don't, I don't know. Healthcare is one of those things that I just don't know. I don't, I don't know if, cause that's all that exactly to your point. That's all I hear when I hear universal healthcare i hear somebody yell socialism from the back of the room or something and i'm like i don't know is it you know it because it seems like we both like it seems like both sides are in agreement that everybody needs it but it's a matter of who's distributing it and how much it's going to cost right that is that really the pain points right well and i want to say a quick word on on you know labeling universal healthcare as socialism Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, first of all, I, there's very different forms of universal healthcare. There's like I like I mean, you know, socialism. What is socialism? It's it's state control of like of, of of the economy in certain sectors. So you know, you could plausibly call what the UK has as like a a socialist healthcare system. It would be a little bit harder to suggest that like Canada's system is socialist uh, because even though the government subsidizes it, um, private health insurance is still allowed to exist. It's not literal state control of that. And, and just another broader point about about when people use the term socialism, something that I've noticed after this election cycle is socialism has been more about like a cultural battle cry. Um, mm. 
Donald Trump has done plenty of things that one could label as socialist, right? Like he, he had high tariffs and then he redistributed money to farmers who were then hurt by those tariffs. I, I mean, I don't understand. I mean, nobody really labeled that as socialist, but it's not, he sort of redefined what it mean to be, what socialism was. It was like an attack on freedom and this like broad mm-hmm. sense of like these radical left-wing people. It, so, you know, I, but it, the the tax on is sort of a universal healthcare program as socialist. Um, I, I just don't know how serious they are. I mean, like, because there's a universal healthcare program is absolutely there. There are plenty of valid criticisms. Vermont tried to implement one; it it failed miserably. But what, I don't know how seriously I take like the the tax on you know it being social. I mean, I, under the same logic, public school is a is a socialist system. You know, it's just mm-hmm. I think you have to analyze it on its own merits and whether or not it'll be particularly effective. And and it's just I, I come down on the issue of I don't know. I have no idea. I, I certainly think there's plausibility to David Frum's argument that it could it could help establish what it means to be an American and social cohesion. But in terms of like the trade offs, like would it result in better? Um, it might result in better access, but worse coverage. Um, you know, th- these are just questions that I'm genuinely unsure of. I just, I have, I have no background in healthcare policy, um, so it's it's hard to say what the what the best solutions are. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it would be fascinating to have all the options listed out. I mean, this did... is something. Just, just quick. I mean, this is the sort of amazing thing, right? Is, is there's not a lot of healthcare policy wonks in the United States, but everybody th- seems no. to think they are one, right? Like <laughs> everybody is like certain that, you know, either universal healthcare is absolutely the way to go forward or it is this disastrous socialist turns us into Cuba. The, the reality is I just, I, I imagine most people like do not know what the, <laughs> what, what, yeah. what, what the right solution is. Uh, but uh, everybody has become a pundit these days. So. Yeah, I don't know either. And I spent a bunch of time trying to figure out how it actually works, you know, and I even in my research when I was trying to prepare on even how to ask questions about healthcare, I came upon this video that was so sad, but I resonated so much. It was like this lady and I think, it, you know, I think it blew up pretty well, but she like got her leg caught in a train in New uh-huh. York or something like that. And everyone around her was trying to help her and she was like please do not call an ambulance i cannot afford to pay for it and i'm like oh, sure. oh, yeah. that's that's you know there's some problem there right you don't even want to pay for an ambulance even though i understand i i got an ambulance one time and it was like 1400 bucks for oh, yeah. a half a mile ride so there's problems within the system how to solve them beyond me right right so you mentioned illegal immigration you know what <laughs> man where do you even start with that too what are some of the major pain points with how the u.s has handled illegal immigration in the past and is there a simple solution because i know daca was overturned recently we got 400 miles of a wall being built we have families at the border trying to get in just waiting what are the major pain points is there a simple solution well when i when i think about immigration um i don't really make that many distinctions between illegal and legal immigration in terms of the the social costs that they have. Something where I think Donald Trump was very successful at in 2016, and he missed and he was able to see something that most Republican elites weren't able to to see, was that uh, there was large there's large scale skepticism of immigration um, throughout the United States, um, and there are very real social costs that come with immigration, and that's mm-hmm. true of illegal or legal immigration. Um, the, generally, um, the, the people who, well, so you have to so like, so take, for example, somebody who uh, comes to the United States illegally, um, li- likely to be low income and as, re- but because they're unauthorized, they're not going to qualify for like social benefits. Right. right but their right. kids disproportionately do rely on social benefits, but the same is actually true of legal immigrants too. They ended up, um, also, uh, being heavily independent compared to the rest of the population on uh, on social benefits, and I, I think that actually is a pressure point for people's sense of social cohesion. P- people uh, see people who don't look like them, um, who don't speak like them, uh, benefiting from you know welfare, and uh, when they see that that a, when in their perspective a a certain political party is uninterested in in tackling that issue. 
Um, you know, D- David Fromm, who I just mentioned, he wrote an article that said that it was titled if, if, if liberals won't enforce borders, fascists will. And so I, I think there's a, a very serious argument to be made. And this is not just the United States. Throughout the world, large scale immigration has led to <clears throat> a large turn towards authoritarian leaders. Um, we saw this with Marine Le Pen in France, um, with a lot of surge in vote for the alternative for Germany in um uh, in Germany, and with Brexit in the UK. Um, and mm-hmm. I mean, Hillary Clinton herself, who I think has very good, I mean, maybe this will, many people in your audience might might not like me saying this, I think Hillary Clinton has very good political instincts and is far more gifted than, than uh, 2016 gave her credit for. But she had said, um, speaking before uh, an international body, that uh, that mass migration in Europe was causing serious tension Serious social ten- tension uh, mm-hmm. within Germany. Um, and again, and again there's, there's obviously several reasons for this, but I mean, you also have, like in the United States, uh, when you have more schools that have to accommodate bilingual education, it, it, pl- it places a, a bigger strain on the school. Now, I, I think it's important to note that this is not to say that, I mean, certainly the opposite approach of no immigration is also, is also disastrous. Um, I mean, it, it provides a sort of um, connection to the rest of the globe. Um, immigrants commit far less crime than, than U.S. citizens, probably because of fear of deportation. Um, immigrants are less likely to engage in like bad social biases like alcoholism and drug use. The, the problem ultimately is the United States immigration policy just does not make any sense at all. Um, it's based off of the, the big sources of immigration in the United States are chain migration and the lottery system. So with chain migration, it's like once somebody is here, um, they, like legally, they can, like I think it's something like 70%, um, then are able to bring their family members. And I think the average immigrant who does, like it's like three family members. And then a lottery system, you know, it's a lottery system. I mean, you know, it, it's sort of, and this isn't to say that like the individual people are bad people, not at all, but it, 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 like they have to go through plenty of screening. Um, but a, a policy that would probably make a lot more sense is one that instead of treating the United States like it has a, a labor shortage problem, um, instead focuses on getting, you know, more software engineers from India or, um, you know, doctors from Nigeria or whatever. Um, so you can still get a windfall from the, the positive benefits of immigration, which there are plenty, without getting, I, I think a lot of people throughout the country feel that immigration um, has been challenged their way of life, um, has, you know, taken up a lot of the, the labor uh, industry, and it has. Mm-hmm. So again, which just results in in greater uh, or, or sorry less social cohesion, and also too, you know, there's it does like I talked about social um, safety nets earlier. When you have a large group of people migrating to the country um, who are just not paying into Social Security and Medicare at the rate in which they may benefit later uh, if they do get citizenship. That puts a strain on the social safety net programs. But if instead you had a system that disproportionately favored people who did prop up those systems, Social Security, Medicare, I, I think people would view immigration a lot more positively. But the way it's done now has led to a lot of increased, a lot of skepticism and a lot of, I think, really negative consequences to people turning to authoritarianism, quite frankly. I mean, you have naturally i think you have about a third of the country that's already sympathetic to authoritarianism and uh they're giving greater political power with something like mass mass immigration um and i mean this is just shown out in like poll after poll that like one of the top issues for people who vote for donald trump who vote for marine le pen who vote for brexit is mass immigration um so you know they're just i I, there are definitely just very real social costs to immigration that i think need to be recognized um and and again maybe the trade-off at least this is what Frum suggests, is cutting immigration levels in half, restructuring how you um, uh, pick people, but then it, but then combining that, so that's a trade-off to people on the left, but then combining that with a system like universal health care. And he thinks that that would, that would create greater social cohesion. Uh, I, I, I'm not entirely sure if that's right, but it, there, there's something about that that appeals to me. 
Now, of course, there's also like Metaglasius wrote a wrote a book that made an ap- opposite argument that looked at like the density in the United States um, and suggested that like you know because we have like 91 people per square mile, like you could you should have like hundreds of millions of, of immigrants, um, mm-hmm. and then that would be gr- good for the United States productivity. But I think it would do a lot of damage to social cohesion. I mean, just no, no other country does immigration like the United States does. Um, and those that, that those that are close to it are then reaping the the pain of and it's again it's not it's nothing about the individual immigrants it's it's, it's the it's, it is people's tendency to then turn to authoritarianism when the country starts turning into something that they don't recognize um, which is unfortunate and sad but it's just it's just a political reality I, I think a lot of people think so I'm going on here quite a bit but a lot of people think that that younger people have different attitudes but I I don't know if that's necessarily true I mean it's like something like over half of, of white millennials think that whites are as discriminated against as any other minority group. Uh, a majority, or yeah, yeah, by four, a majority of whites under 30 voted for Donald Trump. Um, so, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I think, I don't know, I'm not necessarily sold on cutting immigration levels in half. I don't know if that's the right approach. Um, but, but restructuring immigration away from like a lottery system and chain migration more towards a, a merit based system, I think would maybe renew people's faith that immigration it would it would not just highlight the positive aspects of immigration which there are many but da- but um sort of do a better job of eliminating the negative effects uh on social cohesion that immigration brings so that was a also, very long answer i loved it it was so much information that i needed i've also heard a lot about some of the, like the major concerns being security issues like keeping the borders secure so you know bad people don't get in or like you know people running around and as you already stated that you know the crime is lower but to some degree there probably is a level of security as well is there is there anything we can do about maintaining like security of our nation as a whole without you know, rejecting crazy amounts of immigrants that are coming here. And yeah, well, right I, so I mean, I look the, the the thing that was, um, you know, I mean, Donald Trump very much sees uh, politics through symbols, and that's why you know the, the whole thing was about the wall. You know, keep the bad hombres out. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, and, 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 and you know, I it, it, it literally his campaign started with what I thought was basically. A fairly racist beginning, which was, you know, the the Mexican rapists that are coming in, and it's just there's nothing to suggest that um, that of, of of some of the very real negative consequences of immigration, uh, crime rates is most certainly not one of them. Um, so I, I, you know, there's a lot of, I mean, you know, I, I obviously you want supervision over the border uh, because you want to make sure that there's not human trafficking or drug trafficking yeah. or that sort of thing. And that's important. Uh, in terms of people like overst- you know, who you're screening to come in, I think that's certainly not a problem. Um, and like I said, I mean, people who are here illegally are generally more law compliant because if you get caught, if you get so much as a speeding ticket, you're pulled over, you're probably going to get deported. Um, so I don't know. The, sa- the safety thing isn't necessarily one of my concerns. If you want to talk about like how you actually like uh, limit illegal immigration um, – Again, I, I just think Donald Trump is such a simplistic thinker that a, a fourth century wall is like as far as he gets. I mean, there, there's certainly, you know, in, in high density areas like San Diego or um, uh, El Paso, right, that are right on the Mexico border. I mean, Ciudad de Juarez, I know, is right on the other side of the border of El Paso, big city. You know, you, you don't, certainly it makes sense to have greater security on that end. I mean, there already is a fence. I mean, Trump keeps on talking about like how he built 400 miles of wall. He he fixed about 400 miles and only added about nine miles of new fencing. Um, so I think that in terms of like the security we have, we have as about as much as necessary. Maybe you could add new technology, um, drone surveillance. I don't know, uh, in those areas. And I will say the other, the other reason we want, you want to discourage it is because sometimes like crossing through the border is very dangerous. And a lot of migrants end up dying. And so discouraging that is good. Um, the, the 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 easier way to tackle it though is by penalizing employers people who like the incentive to come to the united states illegally is the ability to even if it's low wage work have some work 
um, that pays better wages. Um, and so if you, if there's more enforcement of criminal penalties against those who, uh, pay, uh, undocumented immigrants, that would probably do a far better job than a wall, quite frankly. I agree. Is there, is there a reasonable way that we can actually enforce employers to not (laughs) be penalized in a, in a, in a way that's going to make a lasting difference? Well, yeah, I mean, I have to preface this with saying, um, you know, the, the other thing that Trump campaigned on that I, I just don't, I generally don't think he was serious on. And if he was serious, and I find that a different kind of alarming is deporting 12 million people. I mean, you're, it is, I think both impractical and, and, and sort of immoral at this point. I mean, we, to, to deport 12 million people, I, I mean, it's just, it's, it's almost inconceivable, but it's going to be hard to, um, Give amnesty until people are assured that uh, there won't be ways to uh, block mass illegal immigration in the future. So in terms of how you enforce that with employers, I mean, I, again, I, I, I don't want it this to be something that goes into effect tomorrow because the people who are already here gonna, would, would be put out of work. And I just don't see any value in that. Uh, but, to, but going forward after you know, granting those people amnesty, it's not. I don't think it's actually particularly difficult to just assure to ensure that people that are being hired um, are legally present, either through you know temporary visas, green card residents, or citizenship. So you know, like they have e-verify systems that a lot of U.S. employers already um, use, and so it, it, that I just don't think it'd be a particular thing. And you don't even have to do it. Like I'm not suggesting anybody should go to jail for it, but you know, you could have like right. some fines or something like that. Because the reality is with a large part of the workforce workforce being done by people who do not, for example, cannot vote, um, it's and are not citizens, it's a lot easier for these business employers to take advantage of them, to pay them below the minimum wage. Um, I mean, if they're like sexually harassed, who do you lodge a complaint with, right? Um, and, I mean, the industries that are the most dangerous, that are the at the highest risk of death, are the industries that the people who are mostly employed by them don't have any political power, right? I mean, largely illegal immigrants. So it's certainly like, I mean, it almost creates like a two-tier system where U.S. citizen workers and immigrant workers have different remedies and have riskier jobs. And so I, I do think that we would be able to potentially solve that issue too. Um, if we, if we restricted, uh, who was hired, but again, I, I just think it's important to caveat. I, uh, to emphasize that I'm not suggesting that the, that 12 million people who are already here should be deported because I, I don't think they should be. Then what should happen? Should they, should, I don't know, do they have to go through the process to gain citizenship? Should we just, just grant them automatic citizenship so we can move forward? What would be the consequences of something um, like that? A mass amnesty, pro- I mean, uh, one of the real risks of a mass mass amnesty program is what I noted earlier. Like the There's already, I think, large-scale skepticism of immigration within right. the United States that has given rise to people like Donald Trump and somebody, who, like, somebody like him who I would not just like to see elected again. Um, and... So a, a large-scale amnesty program that granted mass citizenship would be probably politically disastrous in terms of um, how the American public would respond. But I do think that like a path to, am- to, to legalization, one that required you – know, I don't know exactly what you'd do. But to, you'd want people, Americans to have the sense that this was done fairly. Maybe it's right. by paying back taxes or something like that, but there's a process. Um, and then at that point, they're granted – permanent residency but not citizenship um mm. that way there isn't a which is i mean i'm conflicted on that one because i just talked about the importance of having voting power to to sort of end the more to, to, to increase regulation to more dangerous fields that immigrants disproportionately work in on the other hand though there just might not be the political will for um like i think people sent american sense of this was fair um would be greater if people who did not who um, came illegally were not then grant they're, they're granted like full membership status in terms of they can stay legally but but not being granted full membership status in the sense that they can also vote and and have uh, exert political will on the country that's tough I, I think it's a different case for the people who were brought here as kids no fault of their own but 
for adults. That's just probably, I'm not saying this is the political compromise I want. Like I, to me, I would, a path to citizenship is what I'd like to see. But in terms of what the public would be willing to accept without a sort of backlash and then turns to more authoritarian leaders, it probably would be a path to like a green card. Yeah, man, it's a tough one. It's definitely a tough one. And, and, and as you stated, tough for the kids as well. Cause I, I can't imagine deportation even realistically occurring if you grew up here your whole life and then your parents get taken away. Right. That's also, that's also a, a crazy circumstance. Well, and you have, you have situations where, you know, somebody was one, they were brought to the United States and it's like, okay, well, they're technically uh, unauthorized in here, but many of them don't actually know that until they're 16 and, and try to get a driver's license. Right. So it's just like, I mean, it, it is, it makes virtually no sense to send somebody back to a home that they do not know to speak a language they do not understand. Um, it, it's just a, a politically, I mean, it's also just a very politically unpopular move too. I mean, over 70% of the country supports uh, a sort of path to citizenship or at least legalization for, um, for people who are brought here as minors. Yeah. Which, which that seems like it makes the most sense to me. <laughs> like, give them an option. Give them, give them the path to citizenship. They want it. Yeah. So. No, for sure. All right. I think I asked you this in the last, the last interview. So I want to, I want to talk about it again. The race issues. Yeah. We, we saw a tremendous amount of coverage of racial tension, right. systemic racism, police brutality, and. It seems, I mean, this is maybe it could be what I'm viewing and my what's being fed to me online, et cetera. Sure. But it seems like the press isn't covering that sort of thing anymore. Sure. Was it because I like it? I also think it happened in 2016. Was this used? Was any of this racial tension used for politicians advantage? And now that the election has occurred, it's it's pushed back under the rug, so to speak. Um, I mean, pl- politicians always use social movements to their advantage. I mean, I, don't, I certainly don't question that. Um, but this is generally also true in terms of like the fact that it's just sort of all subsided. I mean, that, that's that's true of most periods of mass social mobilization. So, but it doesn't necessarily mean it was unsuccessful either. So, if you look at something like Occupy Wall Street, which got a lot of news coverage for, I don't know exactly for how long, but probably a couple months. Uh, a large-scale gathering similar to what you saw back in June, and then it kind of subsided. And a lot of people thought, well, this this sort of just changed, or th- this was just kind of a flop. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think it really did change conversations on like income inequality and sort of um, politi- or permanently created like a new political coalition uh, of like people who are like fairly left-wing. I, I think the same is probably true. Like like you you generally do these type of large protests to like make a statement to be known. And then at a certain point, the, the, the value of them starts to wear off. Um, so I think that's kind of what we saw back in June. I mean, there was like large scale protests. They were noticed. They were, I mean, you and I talked about it. Everybody talked about it. Um, it's impossible to keep that going on forever. Uh, I certainly don't think there was like this coordination with uh, the Biden campaign or anything like that <laughs> to, in fact, I mean, the most the most radical people, um, uh, which I don't think I'm certainly not suggesting that uh, that even close to majority of the people protesting were radical. Far from it. But the most radical among them probably didn't even vote for Joe Biden, um, probably voted for like Hoey Hawkins, the Green Party candidate. Um, but uh, I, just, I think it's this is it, it subsided because social protests almost always do. They, they, they achieve their purpose of making a, a political statement of shifting a conversation of sort of energizing a new base um and then they sort of naturally subside uh, and i think that's what we saw happen there it was, it was a natural an, a natural occurrence that happened you're basically saying it's it was it's natural for it to have right have concluded the way it did exactly which makes sense to me all right so after viewing the debate the question comes to mind is the two-party system the best strategy we got <laughs> or that could be em- employed for the U.S.? Yeah, um, I, I come to the side of yes, although I, I am sympathetic to why others feel oppositely, especially as those of us who used to be 
formerly registered Republicans, as I used to be, uh, until Donald Trump hijacked the party and transformed it into something almost unrecognizable. Um, you know, there's a, a very strong support for like a, a new uh, third party. It's just one. I mean, obviously, just speaking practically, it just it won't happen. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I do see the value of a two party system. What, what you generally see in in a lot of other countries is a is a parliamentary system that gives a lot of power to a political minority. Um, you know, a, a, if a, you know, the, the liberal Democrats, which is a party in the UK are necessary for coalition building, even though they may have gotten 10% of the vote, they may have massive amount of influence because they're needed to join a coalition. So I, I, I think that th- what happens in the United States by having a two party system is it forces the coalition building to happen within the party. Those trade-offs happen within the party. Um, mm. rather than like a whole, like a, a party being that has like, it's like that 13%, like let's say 13% would like normally vote for green party. It just kind of gets swallowed by the democratic party and then compromises have to be made. Um, right. and I just think it makes, it just makes more sense that way. And it, because then the, the alternative risk is the way that the United States electoral system is designed. If you had several parties that were viable running i mean it would just be entirely plausible to win and to not even have to make political trade-offs by getting 25 percent of the vote the system we have forces those trade-offs to happen within the party and then at least the system in like canada or the uk or israel forces the trade-offs to happen during coalition building but regardless though um yeah, a third party for sure would just give way too much political rev- uh, leverage to um, minority parties. And I think that that would probably be a bad thing overall. But like I said, though, I mean, for people who are disappointed with 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 what the Republican Party has turned into, there's a long a longing for a more sane center-right party. And I, I'm certainly sympathetic to that. But quite frankly, the sort of like center-right um, – anti-Trump wing. It's it's been that political coalition has been subsumed, not in the Republican Party, but in the Democratic Party. And so that it's just part of the more coalition building. So man. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. It's just so I don't know. Maybe it's just politics in general that's fascinating. Like watching watching the debate and it's like finger pointing and and blaming almost like two parties pitted against each other rather than I mean I, I guess at the same time they both believe they have better solutions. I'll add this in a weird way though. We do have multiple political parties, right? Like we have, it's like in the democratic party, like there's a far left, like Bernie Sanders wing. Uh, There's a, like, I guess fair. And then then there's like the Biden wing, which I would say is the center of the party. Excuse me. And then there's like a, like more conservative Democrat, like Joe Manchin, who's the Senator from West Virginia. And the, pri- the purpose of the primary is like basically those those parties, which are they're like subsections of the party, they're basically competing. And then like the Biden in, in this election, the Biden wing won the day. And they, they it's almost like they formed a coalition before um, before the general election. So in, yeah, in a, in a weird way, they exist, just not officially. <laughs> yeah, they're there, but they're not there. Luke, it's been fantastic having you on. Is there anything else? Is there anything we missed? Any, any um, notes that you'd like to hit? You know, the, the only thing I have to add is I, I, I we started this conversation by discussing, you know, voter fraud allegations. And, and I, I raised how a large part of this country does not think that this was a legitimate election. And I just want to close it out by saying that I, I it is something that worries me. I mean, I talked about different things that could be um, dividing blocks for social cohesion, mass immigration, lack of universal health care. But I think a far greater threat to social cohesion is half the country thinking that this was a fake election. Um, mm. And what, what that looks like going forward, I, don't, I do not know. Maybe this is something that sort of blows over after Joe Biden is, is inaugurated. Or maybe it doesn't. Maybe, maybe the, the price of admission in the Republican Party for the next four years is that actually Donald Trump did win the election until it was rigged and stolen from him and that can do tremendous damage this is how democracies collapse and are undone um and this is how quite frankly russia wins and how the united states becomes a less powerful leader throughout the globe 
if we saw this happening in another country, uh, it would be shocking. Uh, we would accuse that country, uh, you know, with a major political party trying to subvert democracy and overturn an election. We would be deeply alarmed. Um, we would condemn them in the UN probably. And it's, it's just deeply alarming to see it happen. I hope that this is just a phase. It blows over. Donald Trump goes away and uh, the Republican Party can reshape. But I'm not particularly optimistic. He's probably going to be the nominee in four years if he runs. So maybe he won't run. But it, 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 I, am, I am slightly optimistic after, after Joe Biden. I mean, I, you know, just full disclosure is probably, probably people who listen to this could probably get my bias before that I lean a little bit to the right, but I, without hesitation, voted for Joe Biden. Um, I was relieved that Biden won, but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of problems still hanging over the country, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few years on whether or not um, the the divided states, which we are right now, can once again become united. Ugh, that's chilling. Ah, oh, man, it's chilling. I, I want the day to come. I want to. I want to. I want to see what's going to happen if the the nation's going to come back together and believe it's a it's a real true democracy yeah. crazy luke where can the people connect with you on the internet how can we get more of you um i mean assuming you know you just got two hours of me so maybe you don't want more of me but <laughs> but if you do want uh more of me i am on twitter at luke rodriguez 75 you know what's funny i think i may have given my wrong twitter handle last time because my <laughs> I, I i can't remember for sure but i think i said it was luke rodriguez 98 for both Luke Rodriguez ninety eight is my Instagram. Luke Rodriguez uh, seventy five is my Twitter. Um, there you go. Uh, and then if you're friends with Nick on Facebook, you can just go to his mutual friends list and friend me on Facebook. Feel free to. So yeah, you can you can get more of uh, my thoughts. Uh, I also uh, actually have started writing for um, sort of a idiosyncratic eclectic uh, um, political site, art digital media. Um, so uh, if you go to Art Digital Media, occasionally you can find one of my one of my articles there. Um, I the last article That's I wrote awesome. was 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 on election day. It was the center right case against Trump. So, um, oh man, but, yeah, yeah, I can Check connect that you that. That'll be in the show notes for sure. That's awesome. Definitely, I'm definitely stoked to check out that article. Well, thank thank you so much. It's great talking to you. Thank you, Luke. You're always a pleasure. You always give great insight. And honestly, I'm sure as time continues, there's always going to be something for us to chat about. So you're welcome on the show anytime. (laughs) Thank you, Nick. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was the podcast. You just listened to it. Next week, we have Robert Kennedy III, a.k.a. RK3. He's a co-founder and president of Connectic Communications. He's a serial entrepreneur and started his first business in 2001, an online music promotion portal with an internet radio station. He's an award-winning public speaker, corporate trainer, and author. His books include 28 Days to a New Me, 7 Ways to Know You Should Lead, and Find Your Voice, 28 Secrets to Help You Speak Up, and speak out. Robert has a background in education, media, and radio. Through his training company, he works with leaders who need to deliver critical messages with confidence. He lives in the state of Maryland, where he's been featured on Fox and CW for his work around confident communication. Uploads every Friday at 6 a.m. The real reason you're still here. When does a British potato change its nationality? When it becomes a French fry. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, I will see you next week. Love you. Bye.